Good morning, church family. If you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to find Jeremiah chapter 36. Jeremiah chapter 36. As you find the book of Jeremiah and specifically the 36th chapter, I want to tell you something you may not have realized today. I recognize that there are many times, about once every seven or eight years, depending on the leap year, where holidays hit on the Lord's Day, and I know that many in our culture will celebrate Halloween, but for any Bible-believing Christian, today is Reformation Day. Now, if you don't know what Reformation Day is, don't worry about it. I'm about to tell you. 504 years ago, today, your life was changed. There are two expressions of Christianity in the world today. There is the Church of Rome, the Roman Catholic Church, and then there are many, many denominations that are considered Protestant. You and I are Protestants. If you happen to be visiting with us today and you are part of the Roman Catholic Church, we certainly welcome you to our worship service. But the vast majority of you would identify as Protestant. Now, don't let that confuse you. The root word for Protestant is protest. This is why we're called Protestants. In 1517, a monk, German Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther, it is his name that gives the Lutheran church their name, Martin Luther began studying his Bible years before that and got saved reading the book of Romans, realized that you did not have to have God's grace coming through some ceremony or some sacrament, that upon faith in Jesus, you can be saved. And he got saved. And as he got saved, he began to wrestle with the teachings of his church. Now, his desire was never to wreck or rebel. He actually wanted to just bring reform which is why he's called a reformer, which is why this is called Reformation Day. It's why your pastor has reformed theology. It's why it matters that we understand our background. And on October 31st of 1517, Martin Luther nailed 95 theses, statements against the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church that he believed were not biblical, were unbiblical. He nailed them to the wall of the Wittenberg Church there in Germany. This is a picture of that church. Now, again, obviously, they're theologians that spend their whole life studying this, but the sum total of Martin Luther's movement, the movement of Reformation that birthed forth Protestantism, was built on the word alone, alone. And these were the five alones that built this theology. Scripture alone is the authority of our life. Christ alone is the way we are saved. We are saved in Christ by grace alone, not by our own merit, not by anything we do. And we access this grace by faith alone, not through communion, not through an intermediary, a human priest or a church, but through faith in Jesus alone. And all of this is for the glory of God alone. Let the church say amen. amen. So today is Reformation Day. Now I ask our marketing department to rename Trunk or Treat to Reformation Day Candy Distribution. They killed the idea. They killed it. So tonight we will certainly welcome our community and we will love on those little ones and we will make many, many contacts with people in the world. But the interesting thing about Reformation Day, though I don't want you to think you walked into a history class, is that when it became central to Martin Luther's life, when God began to use this priest who would go on to become a pastor. He would take a wife. He would marry. 
He would birth the movement that many others were a part of, that you and I are a part of today. He decided to write down his convictions. The great theologian George Strait in 1999 recorded a number one hit. Baby, write this down. This is how I draw all the women into the sermon. I put an image of George Strait up there. And no, your husband doesn't look that good in blue jeans. I'm sorry. But it's a country song about a man watching his love leave him. He's realizing he's made a mistake, and so he wants her to remember. So it says, take my words, read them every day, keep them close beside. Don't you let them fade away. So you'll remember what I forgot to say. Baby, write this down. Take a little note. You've done this before. When you've argued with someone, you mark my words. Write this down. I like this one. You can take it to the bank, baby. Write it down. And if you really mean it, you will say, chisel it in stone. Can I tell you, you came today to worship a God who loved you so much, he wrote it down. I want to preach to you a message about God's word from Jeremiah chapter 36. And here's my goal. I'm going to tell you my goal before I attempt to preach this message to you. When you leave here in just a few moments, I want you to have the best week of your life in and with the Word of God. I want you to be reminded how you should revere it, how you should love it, learn it, and live it. And I want to do that by showing you an example of a man who was given that opportunity. Now, the interesting thing is there is a relationship between the judgment of God and the Word of God. In fact, it is the Word of God that gives us the standard by which we will be judged when we stand before the judgment of God. But praise be to God, it is also the Word of God that teaches us of the grace of God that allows us to forego that judgment having believed upon the living Word of God, who is Christ alone. And in Jeremiah chapter 36, an event happens in Jeremiah's life, in the life of his scribe, Baruch, and the king of Judah. Now, this king is not the last good king of Judah. He's the son of the last good king of Judah. For those of you who are guests of ours, maybe you're joining us online, maybe you're here with friends and family, this series is called Landfall because as we've walked through the book of Jeremiah, verse by verse, systematically, we've treated each section of it thematically so that you and I can stay in touch with what's happening. We're nearing the end of this book, and this is a book where God is pronouncing his judgment against Judah. His judgment is not based on the fact that he is an angry or a wrathful God. It is actually just the opposite. He is slow to anger and rich in mercy. Yet generation after generation after generation rebelled against God. And so finally, God decided to discipline his people. Now, that discipline is going to come in 586 B.C. or 587 B.C. when King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians destroys Jerusalem. As we get to chapter 36, this event is coming. But the book of Jeremiah, and this is very important. It's important to understand the Word of God when you preach on the Word of God about understanding the Word of God. The book of Jeremiah is a collection of prophetic preaching. It is not delivered to us in chronological order. In fact, for example, the passage today happens in Jeremiah's life about 23 years into his ministry 
But several years before King Nebuchadnezzar marches and destroys Judah and Jerusalem. And we will see that because of the hint of grace that is given. Jeremiah is given an assignment. His assignment is captured in George Strait's song. God said to Jeremiah, write this down. Let me show you what I mean, beginning in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 36, verse 1. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, that's important, remember that. The king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you, from the days of Josiah until today. That's quite an assignment. Big deal. Jeremiah's been preaching for many years. And God said, Jeremiah, every oracle I've given you, every picture of prophecy, you write this down. In fact, if we're going to divide this chapter up for you note takers, let me divide it this way. This is a two-part sermon. It's really about God, his word, and Judah. And then the second part, I'll get to in just a few moments, is God, his word, and you. Inside of God and his word and Judah, we begin to see this chapter unfold. First, the word of God is received. God says, I want you to write down everything that I have given to you. Now, why? Does God like homework? Remember that teacher on the first day of school that would tell you to write an essay of your summer? You want every day, ma'am? You want me to write down every day, every cartoon, every bowl of Fruit Loops? I mean, can we narrow this down a little bit? What am I supposed to write about? Was God just wanting Jeremiah and his scribe Baruch to simply write? No, look at verse 3. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them so that everyone may turn from his evil way and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. There's so much truth there. I could stop and just preach for 40 minutes on that verse. Listen, the reason we love the Word of God is because it is God's love letter to us. It is the revelation of his grace. This verse alone shows us that God's desire was never to have to destroy Judah. God's desire was never to have to punish rebellion. God always rejoices in repentance. He is slow to anger and fast to grace. He is quick to show mercy. Now, his anger and his judgment, his justice and his wrath are sure. They are certain, and you will not avoid them if you turn down his love and his grace. His holiness demands both, both his standard that he holds and the standard by which he judges and the grace which he extends in Christ. So even here, hundreds of years before the cross, even here, decade or two before Nebuchadnezzar is going to march on Judah and Jerusalem, even here, God says, Jeremiah, write down everything that I have told you. Get it to the people so that they will turn and I will forgive their sins. Our God is not silent. Whenever I teach on the theology of the Bible, I'm reminded of a quote that's been used by many people. If you ever want to hear God speak audibly, open up your Bible and read it out loud. It is his word. And he has given it to us out of grace. And no, 
sooner has this word been received than God says, I want the word to be relayed. I don't want you to just write it for yourselves. I want you to write it for all of Judah. Look what happens in verse 4. Then Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words that the Lord had spoken to him. And Jeremiah ordered Baruch, saying, I am banned from going to the house of the Lord. Jeremiah had already had a fallen out with the people of his day. So you are to go, and on the day of fasting, in the hearing of all the people in the Lord's house, you shall read the words of the Lord from the scroll that you have written at my dictation. You shall read them also in the hearing of all the men of Judah who come out to the cities. By the way, don't miss that I am reading the word of God to you in the gathered worship of his church. Do not darken the door of a church where the Bible is not open and the man of God does not read the word of God to you. You read the word of God to the church collective and then you explain its sense so that people can connect their lives with its word. In essence, me and every other person standing in a pulpit today is reenacting this prophetic word from Jeremiah, reading the word of God. God wants his word out. He is a God who works in mysterious ways. There are limitations to what we can gather and grasp in our finite minds of his infinite worth and value, but he's not a silent God. He's not a God running from us. He's not a God who's hard to find. Jesus said, seek me and you will find me. And this is the primary way in which we find the Lord, through the revelation of his word. This is his Facebook profile. This is where he reveals to us all of who he is. The pictures of his redemptive character are in these pages. And so the word is relate. So guess what? That's exactly what happened. In fact, we don't have time this morning to read every line, but if you scroll down to verse 7, it may be that their plea for mercy will come before the Lord and that every one of them will turn from his evil way. For great is the anger and wrath that the Lord has pronounced against the people. Verse 8, and Baruch, the son of Neriah, did all that Jeremiah the prophet ordered him about reading from the scroll the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. So that's what he did. He read from the scroll. Now, the scroll could be up to 30 to 40 inches wide, and it could be very long, so long that when it would be unrolled, it would go all the way across this stage. It could be feet, not inches long. It could be made out of crushed plant material like our paper. It could also be very expensive pieces of lamb skin leather made from lamb that would be pressed and treated so that it could be printed upon and it would be rolled. Now, the written word was a highly valuable thing in antiquity. Uh, That's true up until just a few hundred years ago. Most of you would probably not be surprised to find out that your great-great-great-grandparents were taught to read around the kitchen table with the family Bible because the Bible was the most accessible book to people. It was the one book that every household had, even when our country was in its formative roots and very much filled with illiteracy. And so people treasured and valued the written word. And so this word is relayed. Now, now Baruch does this at the temple for anyone to hear. 
But while he's there, some of the king's highest officials hear it. Now remember the contents. You know, because we're 36 chapters into the contents. You know that what he's reading is a difficult message of doom and judgment if there's no repentance. So if you were on the king's cabinet, if you were a part of his council, and someone with prophetic authority began to talk about the Babylonians coming and Nebuchadnezzar marching and the city walls being laid siege to and the city homes and towns in the area being burned to the ground, you would pay attention. Even I, someone pretty insignificant in the scale of this nation, if I used this stage to begin to speak threats against the United States of America on a weekly basis, the FBI would be attending this service. Anybody who speaks threats and violence against an established government eventually will get the attention of that government. These cabinet members, these counsel to Jehoiakim, they heard the word of the Lord. And look what the Bible says in verse 15. They called him a second time and they said to him, sit down and read it again. So Baruch read it to them. When they heard all the words, they turned one to another in fear. And they said to Baruch, we must report all these words to the king. So they knew they had a responsibility. They had a responsibility. If you utter a threat against a stranger that I don't know, there's little I can do. But if you utter a threat against someone I care about, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to tell them. I'm going to warn them. I may try to discourage you or stop you or, in essence, deflate or de-escalate your anger. These men were in positions of authority and accountability, and all of a sudden they're listening to this word of judgment that is supposedly from the word of God through the prophet Jeremiah, whom they had already heard of and interacted with. And so they said, the king needs to hear this. So the word is received. The word is relayed. Sadly... The word is rejected by the king. Look what happens in verse 20. So they went into the court to the king, having put the scroll in the chamber of Elishama, the secretary, and they reported all the words to the king. They didn't take the scroll into the presence of the king. They knew full well the level of wickedness this man had descended to. They wanted to preserve the scroll, and so they just brought in an executive summary. This is what we've been told is going to happen to us through the scribe Baruch from the prophet Jeremiah. Look what happens beginning in verse 21. Then the king sent Jehudai to get the scroll. He took it from the chamber of Elishama the secretary. And Jehudai read it to the king and all the officials who stood by the king. By the way, this is, of course, the third reading. Remember, the scribe, Baruch, read it aloud. The council said, come in here and read it again, what you said. Then they said, the king needs to hear it. And the word is read again to the king. There is this idea of repetition and reading, the importance. Now look what happens. This is one of the saddest commentaries in all of the Bible about the word of God. As Jehudah, verse 23, read three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire in the fire pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants 
who heard all these words was afraid, nor did they tear their garments. I love pictures in the scripture. In fact, one of the things that I want to do with my words is to help you see the scriptures come alive. Remember who King Jehoiakim is. Let me refresh your memory. He is the son of King Josiah. Josiah was the last good king of Judah. Do you know one of the reasons we know Josiah was a good king? Not a perfect man, but a good king, a righteous man, a man who loved the Lord God. Because during Josiah's reign, they were remodeling some of the temple. And as they tore out some of the wall, they found the law. Scrolls containing the law of God. You see, the society had gotten so far away from the Word of God, they had forgotten God's Word. That sound familiar? And so they brought the scroll to Josiah, and they read it to him. Do you know what the Bible says happened in the book of 2 Kings? When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Now see the contrast. Josiah was so convicted of the disobedience in his life And in the lives of his people, that he lamented and mourned before God. And the most valuable thing he had, barring his own flesh, which to damage your own flesh, to inflict self-harm is against the law, was his clothes. And one of the most powerful symbols of open repentance is tearing one's clothes before God. What do clothes do? They cover us. They give us dignity. They give us honor. They match the occasion. You go to a funeral, you wear dark colors. You go to a spring wedding, you wear bright colors. Tonight, people be wearing all kinds of colors on our campus. Our clothes reflect the mood and the circumstance of the day. So when a man or a woman is so wrought with guilt over their sin against God, they rip their clothes. They're showing God their brokenness and the open confession of their life. So King Josiah heard the word and ripped his clothes. Yet his wicked son heard the word and ripped the word. He tore the word instead of letting the word tear his heart. Is that not a commentary on our culture today? And the scripture says, the word was rejected. Now look what happens. All this work has been destroyed. It's been burned in a pot. It was the winter of the year. The pot was there being burned with a fire to heat the king's home. And the scripture says a little bit later in verse 27, Now after the king had burned the scroll with the words that Barak wrote at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, Take another scroll and write on it all the former words that were there. And by the way, verse 28 is the reason I can preach a series through the book of Jeremiah. You ever want to know if your Bible's true? If verse 28 were not true, I'd have no book to preach to you. Verse 28 is true, and Jeremiah rewrote with his scribe's dictation, his dictation, his scribe's hand, all of the oracles and the prophecies. Verse 29, and concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, You shall say, thus says the Lord, you have burned the scroll, saying, why have you written in it the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and will cut off from it man and beast? Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have none to set on his throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat by the day and the frost by night, and I will punish him and his offsprings and his servants for their iniquity, 
And I will bring upon them and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon the people of Judah all the disaster that I have pronounced against them, but they would not hear. Then Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to Baruch, the scribe, son of Nerea, who wrote on it the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the scroll of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire, and many similar words were added to them. Those are the prophecies that came after this moment. The word was rewritten. It was preserved. God's going to preserve his word. It's a fascinating study to study how the Bible came to be the Bible. It was canonized through a miraculous series of events of preservation. Archaeological find after archaeological find that turned up scrolls that predated the scrolls that were once used continue to confirm and affirm the consistency and the accuracy of the word of God. Now, I went through that chapter rather quickly. We could camp in this chapter for quite some time. You know, we know how to do that. But I went through it rather quickly because as I began to study this passage, I felt like this chapter fell out with ease. It's not complicated to understand. It's a powerful and dreadful picture of God relaying grace writing it down, bringing it to his people once again, yet we already know the outcome, and Jehoiakim epitomizes the rejection of the word of God. He doesn't ponder it. He doesn't consider it. He doesn't ask for further explanation. No sooner has it rolled off of the scroll, he takes a scroll, a scribe's knife, slices it, and throws it into the fire, believing that not only did he not want to hear it, He didn't want anyone else to hear it again. Friend, you'll never stop the word of God. And this chapter proves that. For no sooner had it happened that Jeremiah was told, rewrite it, and he did, and we have it. I've left myself a little time because I want to do the second part of the sermon in relationship to application. I told you the first part of the sermon was God and his word in Judah. Everything I've told you is true. It's historical. You you can read it right there. But what does this have to do with your life? See, if you were to walk out of the service today more familiar with chapter 36 and less devoted to the Lord, then we've not accomplished anything. I'm not really interested in you just being good at Bible scholarship. Scholarship's important, but discipleship matters more. Jesus didn't say make scholars. He didn't say make smart people. He said make disciples. And all of you are going to go to your job tomorrow. You're going to raise your children and interact with your grandchildren. You have your set of responsibilities tomorrow. Yet by confession of presence, you came today to sit under the word of God. That is a move you have made saying that to some degree in your life, there is allegiance to this book. And so, so just as we close and we think about the teachings and the implications of this chapter, I want you to ponder in your mind What can we do with the Word of God? What do you do with the Word of God? And I don't want you to think about Judah, though it's important to ponder the history of the Bible. I want you to think about today, October 31st, 2021, specifically in the nation known as the United States of America, more specifically in the state of South Carolina, even more specifically in the upstate of South Carolina. And if we're going to be even more specific, 
in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Here we are. This is where we live our life. I recognize that some of you are watching online from all over the world. We have men and women in our armed services. We have folks that live in other communities. So certainly, I want you to know that no matter your location, no matter the zip code that you put on your address, this has relevance to you. What do we see happening with the Word of God, and what is the application for your life? How will you look and live and learn differently? Well, allow me, if you will, just because I'm a list guy, to give you four relationships people have with the Word of God, and I would encourage you to jot these down. First, you can always just dismiss it. This is what people who do not know the Lord do. This is a faith problem. I I dare say there's hardly any of you that would fall in this category, though you might be here as a friend and you might be a cynic, an agnostic, a, a skeptic. I'm glad you're here. I want you to hear the Word of God. I can't manipulate you. I can't emotionally make you make a life changing decision, but I believe that if you hear the Word of God under the spirit of conviction, that, that faith can be birthed in your life. But there are many people that say, I dismiss it. I don't believe it is God's word. That is a faith issue. And by the way, it's important to recognize that it doesn't help the kingdom for believers to be frustrated when a lost and dying world does not affirm Judeo-Christian values based on the Bible. We should not expect them to. You cannot know the love of God in his word until you know the love of God in your heart. Until you trust in the Lord, until you believe upon him, his word will have a limited amount of application to your life. Sure, there are principles in his word that anybody can live by, and if applied, they will help. This is a part of God's common grace. But my relationship with the living word, Jesus, and my relationship with the written word, the Bible, cannot be separated. Paul says it this way about faith in the book of Romans. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So there's this fascinating beauty of the word of God. The proclamation of the gospel, specifically the gospel laid out in the Bible, the redemptive story of God as given to us in the scriptures, the 66 books that we believe are inspired and that we affirm with church history and church fathers, the miraculous work of preservation, that the word of God, when it is heard and taught and preached, points people to the Son of God. And when people hear the Word of God about the Son of God, they are then put in a position for the Spirit of God to convict them based on the truths of the Word of God and the love of the Son of God. And when the Spirit of God convicts them of their need to be at peace with God, then the Word of God tells them the Son of God died so that they might have forgiveness. And upon forgiveness, the Word of God promises that the Son of God sets free, saves, and declares forever forgiven any person who hears and responds to the Word of the gospel, which is exactly why Paul says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. So there are people who are just going to dismiss the Bible. They're not going to believe it, affirm it. They will say it is nothing more than a historical religious document. I'm not angry at those people. I'm not frustrated at those people. I see their confusion and I should feel pity and compassion for them. This is a faith issue. You can dismiss it. I dare say none of you are in this category. There's a second category. 
You can distort it. This is not a fear problem, faith problem. It's a fear problem. We see this a lot in people who would profess faith and even profess high reverence and respect for the Bible. Yet at every turn, they distort the message of the Bible. They dismantle it. They de-emphasize it. They dilute it if you want to stay on the D train. They do all these things to the Word but interpret it correctly in its context. This is a fear problem. You may want to write this down. If you fear men, you'll demand that God change. But if you fear God, you'll demand that men change. If you fear man, if you want man's approval, if you want the popularity of the culture to swing your way, if you want to find whatever is determined to be politically correct and join that, you'll have to change God. You'll have to distort, dismantle, de-emphasize, and dilute the God of the Bible. But if you fear God, you won't move off his word, and you'll demand that man change, or you'll at least present to man the truth. I fear God. Therefore, there are only two genders. I fear God. Therefore, it is wrong and an abomination for man to lie with man and woman to lie with woman. I fear God. Therefore, I can never hurt, judge, or discriminate against someone because of the color of their skin, because of the language they may speak, or because of their level of socioeconomic status in our culture. If you and I fear God and do not distort his word, then everything the world seems so confused about could not be more crystal clear. It does not mean we're not compassionate with people who struggle. It doesn't mean we're not compassionate with people who are dealing with sins that are deep and difficult for us to understand. But it also doesn't mean we change. We don't move because the Word does not move. And you can always pick the low-hanging fruit of those issues that we scoff at when we see the world struggle. But if you fear God, and you are here today, and you are an adult, a young adult, or medium-aged, or a senior adult, if you fear God, and you are not married, you should not be sexually active. If you fear God, then tomorrow, no matter what others do, you should be honest with your employer, and honest with your taxes, and honest with your accounting, and honest in the way you interact with people around you. If you fear God, then you are not allowed to push hurt, manipulate, abuse any person in your life. If you fear God, when you fail and you will fail, you humble yourself before God. You don't change the standard of God. And the standard of God is in his word. But if you fear man, and this is what most men do, if you fear man, then your morality will be, be, be determined by the morality of the day. There's just one problem. When you die, you won't stand before the throne of your culture. You'll stand before the throne of the living God of heaven. He has never, nor will he ever change. He loves sinners so much that he sent his son to die for them. But he loves his son so much that he will not negotiate with sin. And so we can distort it. There are two more ways we can treat God's word, and this is where I think you and I find ourselves. The third way 
is that we can just distance ourselves from it. This is not a fear problem. It's not a faith problem. This is a focus problem. You see, the vast majority of people I've ever had the privilege of standing before and preaching would probably agree with me if I said, this is the Word of God, and it is inspired and inerrant and infallible, and it is God's wisdom for your life. It is the picture of His redemption. I can see myself working a crowd up into a frenzy, affirming the Word of God, only to throw it on the back dashboard of their car or in the floorboard of their pickup truck or to close that app down after the sermon's over Never to touch that app again until next week, yet they touch their Instagram and Facebook app hundreds of times a day. What does the scripture teach us about our focus and distance? Jesus was dealing with some men who said they were experts, and he said, you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Now, this is the specific incident where they were trying to ask a complicated question about the second coming and the resurrection, but Jesus took the complicated and made it very simple. You're wrong because you don't know the Scriptures and you don't know the power of God. And I think it's interesting that in this one sentence, Jesus connects both. So let me tell you about my life, not my testimony or not the strength or the weaknesses of my faith. We don't have time to list everything I'm good at and bad at, and neither do we have in your life. There is a direct relationship between my scripture life and my sin life. When one is up, the other's down. The more time I'm in the Word, the stronger I am in resisting temptation. The less time I'm in the Word, the weaker I am. Now, why is this? Now, go with me. Let's talk about something we all love, food. In fact, tonight, you've already got a plan to rob your children once they go to bed <laughs> of all that good stuff. I see some people in this room in their 60s and 70s who will say they're bringing their children to trunk or treat, which is Reformation Day candy distribution, and they'll bring a bag for themselves just kind of hold it there, never to share it with anyone else. Most people would say if you and I stopped eating, it'd do us good. Fasting's good if you're healthy. It's good for you for a reasonable amount of time. But if you stop eating, period, not only will you be malnourished, your health will begin to break down. When we go to places in the world that are ravaged with famine and war and genocide, Starvation kills far more people than bullets do. And the fascinating thing about the human body is that it's rather simple. In order to use energy measured in dietitian's language as calories, you have to take in calories. The Bible says that's what the Word of God is to our soul. What nourishment is to your stomach is what the Bible is to your soul. Now, we already know we're in a fight. We already know there's spiritual warfare. We already know there's an armor of God we need to put on. We, we, we know the enemy's going to attack us, so, so we don't get to take it easy. But if we're not feeding our soul the Word of God, then we've got nothing for our spiritual life to draw nourishment from. Because, fascinating, the Spirit of God that lives in a Christian takes the Word of God that comes into a Christian's life through reading, prayer, and uses it as spiritual nourishment so that the man or the woman of God 
can be faithful to do what they need to do. In fact, we know this about it. What did Paul say in 2 Timothy 3.16? He said about the word, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. All Scripture, that's your whole Bible, is breathed out by God. That's its source. It's inspired. It's infallible. It's not just a novel or a religious epical work, uh, epic work. It's profitable for, and then look what it does. It teaches us. That tells us what to do. When we mess up, it stops us and corrects us. That's reproof. And then once, we, once it says stop, you're doing it wrong, it tells us again what we need to do, and then it trains us to keep doing it over and over. This is the verse I use at every FCA camp because every coach understands this. You tell a player what to do. When they do it incorrectly, you stop them. You recorrect, re-guide, retrain. Moms, you know about redirecting. You redirect, and then you say do it three times. Do it five times. Do it six times. Do it over and over again so it becomes an instinct. This is what the Word of God does, and this cannot happen just on Sundays. This must be a part of the rhythm of our life that we're feeding on the Word of God. And so, we can't distance ourselves from it. Finally, some of us may know it, and we just disobey it. That's a flesh problem. So, so, so to review, you, you, you and I can dismiss it. That's not you. But there are people that say it's not God's Word. That's a faith problem. Others distort it. They want to reinterpret it. That's a fear problem. They fear man more than they fear God. I fear God. Then there are some who distance themselves from it. I believe it. I revere it. I respect it. But it's not really a part of my life. And then there are times when we know what to do and we just disobey it. When we disobey it, that's a flesh problem. Here's how we come full circle to the relationship of Scripture and sin. Psalm 119, look what it says. How can a young man keep his way pure? Ladies, older men, you certainly can plug yourself into this sentence. It's true for you as well. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Not what your preacher thinks. Not what your mama wants. Your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. We can do that, can't we? I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Reading the Bible doesn't take away the opportunity to sin. It just fills the void of our heart with truth and wisdom so that in the moment, we've got strength for the battle. It's not a guarantee of perfection for every person in the Scripture struggles with sin. But the most holy people I know, the people I know who walk in righteousness do so because there is a healthy portion of the Word of God into their life. I get all kinds of pictures from my kids during the week. My sons and I are constantly exchanging deer trail cam pictures right now because we're trying to find a good one. We've got a few, and they're night walkers right now. We need them to make a mistake, and that's how deer die. They're not monogamous. Keep that in mind, men. We need them to make a mistake. I get pictures of my little girls, and, uh, and, and my older daughter will dress up my little girl or put pigtails on her and show her. I get pictures. I get all kind of pictures from my family. But you know my favorite family picture every week I get? It's daily when I and my sons exchange a picture of our quiet time. So my oldest boys and I, we hold each other accountable. We're not perfect. I don't get one every day from them. But when they read their Bible and they journal, they take a picture of it, and they send it to me, and I send them my quiet time every 
day. Do you know why? Because I have young men. You know what the Bible says about young men in the Word of God? Let me put it back up there. Psalm 119. How can a young man keep his way pure? I could try to scare him to death. That's not going to stop temptation from coming. Rather, I would love him to know and love the Word. My children aren't perfect. They're going to make plenty of mistakes. Don't put them in a glass house. But I know that if I can hold myself accountable and them accountable, we put ourselves in the best possible position to honor the Lord. I'm working on a discipleship book right now. I hope to release it next year. It's to help people disciple one another. And if you've never had a quiet time, I've written a method I want to share with you, and I'll close. Take out a piece of paper or a journal, have a portion of Scripture ready, and write the word camp on it, because I want you to camp in God's Word. C-A-M-P. This is the camp method, debuting today on Reformation Day, 2021. Here it is, real simple. Write C-A-M-P down the left side. C stands for copy a portion of what you're reading and comprehend it all. Write a few paragraphs as to what the Bible is saying. Get a study Bible. I like the ESV study Bible, the MacArthur study Bible. There are really good study Bibles out there. Get a study Bible that explains it. Read a portion of Scripture. Write down a verse, a key verse. Make yourself write the Word of God and write a few sentences as to what the passage is talking about. Not what it means to you. What does it mean? What is it saying? What is it teaching? Some portions are longer than others. Bible reading plans are everywhere. Just Google them. But I encourage you to get in your Bible. I discourage the use of devotional books that have one half of one verse and then the author tells you their thoughts. I'm not against devotions, but make sure you're heavy in the Word. Make sure it's the Scripture. That's what matters. Then, after you've written a few lines about what it means... Write a few lines about applying it to your life. Based on the truth of what I've just read, how does this apply to my life? Can I tell you that most of the time when I journal, angels don't show up and sing, and the voice of Billy Graham doesn't fill the room. It, doesn't, it may not ever even appear spiritual. It is that daily grind of getting in the Word. And so I've written a few sentences, a paragraph on uh, what it means to comprehend it, and then how to apply it, then put your pencil down or your pen down and meditate on it. This is what's missing, I think, from many reading plans. To pause, turn your phone off. Do not use your phone for your quiet time because your phone is a tool for many things in your life and those things always pop up when you're trying to be with the Lord. Turn your phone off and meditate on the Word of God. Don't picture Eastern meditation. The Eastern religions are about nothingness. Meditation in the Bible is meditating on the Word of God. Read the passage out loud. Think about it. Set before the Lord for just a few moments. And then pick your pen back up and write out a paragraph prayer. How are you going to pray this word in your life? Pray on it, pray over it, pray in it, pray through it, pray it. When you get done, you should have three to four paragraphs on about a half sheet of paper in a journal that you can buy off Amazon for $6. And you've camped in the word. So every day you have a campsite where you pause and you camp in the Word. And why? I gave you the goal a few moments ago. It's real simple. I want you to love the Word. I want you to learn the Word. And I want you to live the Word. What does Psalm 1 say? I love Psalm 1. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of 
of the Lord. You know how to learn to love anything? Do it. The more you do it, the more it will become your delight. The more you expose yourself to it, the more you enjoy it, the more you will delight in it. It won't be legalistic. It won't be robotic or rudimentary. It will be something that you enjoy. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Write this down.